we like joke that our favorite genre is chapter books. (laughs) (laughs) Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 189. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, you may have heard us talk about our Patreon community, a place where you can learn more about the inner workings of the show and add your voice to the creative process. As a great example, our patrons voted to invite today's guests. With each One Great Book episode we release, I also record a bonus episode about a great book that hasn't been released yet so you can be in the know and, most importantly for our audience here, get your name on the library holds list early. Well, One Great Book is back with Volume 2, and we're sharing One Great Bonus in Patreon each Friday. Becoming a patron means loads of new audio content in more ways than these bonus episodes. For a limited time, we've partnered with Libro FM to give all hardback tier supporters a free audiobook. Summer is made for audiobook listening, and this is the perfect time for you to become a new patron. Go to patreon.com slash what should I read next for all of the details. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what should I read next, where you can find out all about our patron perks, including the free audiobook offer. This is a limited time offer, so become a hardback supporter today. Today's guests, Brenna Sherrill and Ryan Pate, describe themselves as platonic soulmates, book-loving best friends who grew up together, went to school together, read together, sometimes even out loud, and live together. I had the pleasure of meeting them both when I hosted a conversation with Celeste Ng at the Louisville Free Public Library recently. It was such a great night, and I know I just gave you a bunch of details about our Patreon perks, but readers, you should know there's over an hour of audio from that live sold-out conversation with Celeste on our Patreon audio feed as of yesterday, so you can sign up now for instant access. Back to Brenna and Ryan. Today, we're chatting about a truly magical college class, Ryan's most embarrassing moment meeting a literary icon, although honestly, it might have been more embarrassing for the icon the book Ann Patchett thinks everyone should read. And of course, I'm recommending three books I think they'll enjoy reading together and also discussing to death because that's their style. Let's get to it. Brenna and Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) We're so excited. This is a little different for me and probably for you as well because we already had you all on the books to record today when I got to meet you in person at Celeste Ng. When was that? It feels like forever ago, but it was probably like a week and a half. Basically a week and a half. But I also feel like it seems eons (laughs) ago. It seems fitting that I've already bumped into you at a bookish event because you all are leading very literary lives. We try to. (laughs) Have you always, or is this a new Cincinnati chapter for you? Well, I can sort of speak for both of us to some extent. We both, I guess, are big readers and always always have been and both got master's degrees in literature a couple years ago. I am now a year into a PhD program in English literary and cultural studies. And so it's basically my current job and hopefully future job to just be reading a lot of books. <laughs> Ryan gets to do other fun stuff with books. So Ryan, when you were telling me about your job on the steps of the Louisville Free Public Library, you could probably <laughs> see me turning green with envy. <laughs> 
Yeah. So on the side, I freelance for a magazine in Houston called Houstonia. I cover literary events for them. So basically, anytime there's an author in town doing a reading, I like reach out to their publicist or agent and ask if I can interview them. They normally send me a book. I get to do a phone interview with them. It's super fun. Normally at the end of the interview, they're like, well, I see you there. And I'm like, no, I'm in Cincinnati. And they're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) But it is the most rewarding freelance job in the world. So I'm like, I get to read a book. I get to talk to a person that's really interesting. And then it's on to the next one. So it's really fun. And it's fun to be the roommate of the person who does that because a lot of my job, if he's here interviewing them, is that I distract the cat from being bothersome during it. Teamwork makes the literary magic happen. Somebody's got to wrestle those cats. How long ago did you all meet? Uh, (laughs) It's embarrassing because we're young, but we've known each other for almost 20 years. (laughs) So what percentage of your life is that? That's a long time. Well, I'm 27, so a significant (laughs) portion. Grew up in the same town. We have always been in the same world, basically. High school was definitely when we became a lot closer. Ryan was my prom date. And then we first lived together when I finished college and was starting my master's degree. Did you all get degrees from the same place? Yes. And even the same degrees. So So you went through the program together? Our undergrad and graduate degrees are both like in the same subjects, but Brenna was just kind of a year ahead of me because she's a year older. Has your friendship always been built around books or is that something you discovered as you got older? I think that's been a big part of it for a long time. We just both are readers and I remember... Oddly enough, Ryan in high school lending me one of Chelsea Handler's memoirs. <laughs> so that's weird to reflect on now. I just, I think, both grew up reading a ton, certainly had Harry Potter in common, those sorts of things. And then our undergraduate degrees are both in pop culture studies. And we both sort of took a literary film TV sort of angle on that. It's always just been part of it, I'd say. And my recommendations have gotten much better than Chelsea Handler's memoirs. <laughs> That's so embarrassing. I don't know that I thought of that at all until this moment. I'm a parent. We have teenagers in the house and something that we say to our kids all the time, kind of as a caution and kind of as a, uh, you know, it's fine. Don't be too hard on yourself is that it's science. Teenagers just do stupid things. So we'll just just file the Chelsea Handler memoir under that category. I don't know. Was it that bad? I've never read it. What did you think, Brenna? It was fine, I think. It was just like, well, she's not really a person that we care so much about now. I don't really (laughs) have anything against her. But even if you're going to read celebrity memoirs, there are better ways to go. Yeah, that was like Chelsea Handler in her prime. But I feel like that time has just kind of gone away now. Has Ryan recommended any better books to you lately? (laughs) Just last week or the week before, I read An American Marriage because he has twice interviewed Tayari Jones and really loved that. I read it in about three days. We were just discussing it the other night. We like to pretend that we're casting agents and that we can decide who's allowed to be in movies of things. So we were working on that. That's been years in the making where we spend a lot of like, if people would just give us the control and allow us to cast things, we'd be good at it. So who did you cast for it? Andre Holland and Russell Hornsby and Denai Guerrera in the leads. I'd watch that. Well, we definitely would watch it. (laughs) Was it Toni Morrison who said, if the book you want to read doesn't exist, you have to write it? Yes. It's probably harder to produce the movie, but I like that you're trying. I think about that thing from Toni Morrison all the time because Dracula is my favorite book and there's like no really good adaptation of it. And I'm just like, well, I'm going to have to do it myself. So (laughs) one of these days, you'll see a Dracula adaptation from me. That's great. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's such a smart thing, though, because that is totally her story of like, she wasn't seeing the books that she wanted to read in the world. So she just took it upon herself. And she's doing a pretty good job, I think. Yeah, I don't have the skill set for that. But I yeah. I appreciate the thought. <laughs> I don't mean, yeah, like you don't have the skill set. <laughs> <laughs> We're honest. <laughs> Ryan, do the book recs go both ways? Yeah, I'm trying to think of like specifics, but it's like so constant that we're like always talking about the books we're reading and we very much do the like, would I like it? Like as we're talking about things Mm -hmm. with each other. Mm -hmm. Well, I do know at least two of the things that are our shared favorites were things that I read first that we both knew we wanted, I think, to read. Ooh, that's fun. We're going to get to that. Brenna, I was surprised to hear that Harry Potter is in a very real way your job these days. Oddly enough, I'm in my... PhD program at the University of Cincinnati. In the undergraduate program, there is a large enrollment Harry Potter class in the English department, and I am going to be a teaching assistant for that class in the fall semester. In their exams and those sorts of things, one of the options for an essay that they can write is either sort of comparing a scene in one of the books to one of the films to see how adaptation works, or they even get the chance to write fan fiction. So Normal people in a literature class would not be excited about reading that much stuff for an undergraduate class. But when it's Harry Potter, of course, people are excited about it. You did your honors thesis on Harry Potter. I did. And tell me more about that. I've cared about Harry Potter for a very long time. I realized in November will be my birthday, and that will be 20 years ago that I got my first book. Basically, my argument as a pop culture student was that. Harry Potter is real literature and it's not just YA stuff. And even like the New York Times bestseller list created a YA reading list because of the Harry Potter series, which is really interesting because it was dominating the real bestseller list. So we need to sort of subcategorize it. So I did a lot of sort of comparing Harry Potter to similar sorts of things happening in literature. I had a big section on Christian imagery and symbolism in the series also sort of a character arc study of Snape, especially those sorts of things. Interesting. What is this going to mean for your reading life? You get to read a little bit extracurricularly. I do. The odd thing is I do, for the most part, keep up with some fun reading in the semester because I think it sort of helps my brain to have something at least before I go to sleep to be able to read a little bit just what I want to read. Mm -hmm. I do plenty of audiobooks too, so I guess that keeps it in. But Right now, since it's the summer, I am just taking in whatever I want, which is great. But then August will hit and that will stop being true. (laughs) We always are reading something for fun. I remember like during the last semester of grad school for me, I met with my advisor and I like mentioned, oh, I'm reading this and this. And my advisor was like, oh, like what class is that for? And it's like, it's not for class. It's just for me. And he was like, you read for you? Like on top of the other (laughs) stuff? Yes, that is all I care about. Of course, I'm reading for myself. And he was like, I can't even keep up with the stuff we read for class. And I was like, okay, interesting. (laughs) Now, Ryan, your professional background has been a little bit different. Brenna, for practical purposes, I'm just considering your PhD, your job. (laughs) You should. (laughs) Just as demanding, just as much work, probably more so. But Ryan, you've also been reading on someone else's schedule most of the time, but with a different angle. So gosh, a long time ago, I applied for an internship doing copy editing in Chautauqua, New York for the newspaper, the Chautauquan Daily. So it's like this tiny town in upstate New York. Everybody thinks it's New York City and it is not because New York State is a huge place. Did they not learn about Chautauqua in eighth grade? No, I guess not. I mean, I kind of figure if I learned about that in Kentucky, they learned about it everywhere. All right, props to Mr. Speed, who taught me all about Chautauqua. (laughs) 
the first summer that I went, I applied to be a copy editor. And when I like interviewed for the job, the editor of the paper was like, you do know that there is a beat that is covering like literary arts and authors who come to visit? No, I did not. And he was like, I read your blog and see that you read all the time and like actually care about what you read. So like, would you want to do that instead? And I was like, yes, of course. So that is how that started. And then at the end of the first summer, they invited me back. And then at the end of the second summer, they were like, why not do this again? And then at the end of the third summer, they were like, let's do one more time and then you can be done. <laughs> at Chautauqua, there's like a nine week season. And every week, there's like one major author who comes and does like a big lecture to talk about their book. And then there are normally a prose writer and a poet that are like living like in residence and teaching workshops. So I would get to interview all of those people, which is a lot of fun. I have this giant list of all the like authors I've ever interviewed and it's ridiculously long because of Chautauqua mostly. Oh, wow. But it was kind of good training. That's how I met the person who connected me like at Houstonia Magazine. So that is how I like made that connection because my friend is working at that magazine and was like, we need someone to do literary coverage and nobody is very good at it. Do you want to do it? Well, what makes literary coverage challenging? For those of us who've never had to hire anyone, have never attempted to do it. I think a lot of it is just like interest. I am very deeply invested in reading and literature. So I like care very much about getting to talk to these people and like having a good conversation with them and kind of digging into what I think is interesting about them. And I think some people just like don't like to read that much. <laughs> Loving to read makes it a little more rewarding. Mm -hmm. I don't get paid a ton for it, but I don't really care because I'm like, I get a book in the mail and then I get to like have this experience of talking to someone who's really interesting for 30 minutes at a time. So that is like all the payment I need for it. And I talked about it the other day because I like said something or maybe to my family, I said something about like, oh, I'm like interviewing this author later. And they're like, oh, did you read the book? And it's like, yes. And they're like, did you like it? And it was like, no, not really, but I'm going to have a good conversation with this person. <laughs> right. And I think that's surprising to a lot of people to find out that you can have, whether you're going to book club or you're a professional interviewer, you can have an excellent conversation, even if you didn't like it. Absolutely. Do you have any memorable anecdotes from your Chautauqua summers? The first summer that I was doing that job, I got to interview EL Doctorow, which is a big deal. And I was really excited and really nervous. And the way my setup worked back then was that I would call somebody and have them on speakerphone and I would record. So I would have the audio to like transcribe everything. Mm -hmm. So I'm like sitting in this little like quote unquote office that doesn't actually reach the ceiling. So everybody can still hear what I'm saying and interviewing him. And normally those interviews take like 20 to 30 minutes. He only talked to me for seven minutes uh -huh. and <laughs> did not really answer any of my questions. And three times during that seven minutes, and it said, are we through yet? Oh, no. <laughs> and I was just like spiraling out of control. And I was just like trying to make things better. And I like had prepared what I thought were really thoughtful questions. And he just like did not want to answer any type of interpretation or question. So it was just like really embarrassing. Like, oh, my gosh, everyone can hear me. We finished the call. <laughs> everyone can hear him saying, are we done yet? Yeah, so everyone yet? can hear it. And that summer too, like I was asking every author like the same question at the end of the interview so I could like write this like special thing at the end. So I was asking everybody what book they would bring to a desert island. And he thought about it for a second and said, I wouldn't be on a desert island. Are we through now? <laughs> So I like hang up, definitely curse to myself. Like the audio like has me saying <laughs> a not nice word, not about him, just about the situation. And then I like walk out of the little office and my assistant editor looks at me and was like, that was not your fault. And I'm like, okay, thank you. Like I tried. Whew, it was embarrassing. But yeah, so that was 
pretty memorable to be taken to task by an American literary legend. It was kind of like an eye-opening thing too. So it was like he was an older man and like he was obviously like going through some health stuff and I had no idea. Um, so I'm like, of course he didn't have the time for me. Well, I'm very sorry about E.L. Doctorow and his untimely <laughs> demise. I have moved past it. I've forgiven him. And I'm like, I still want to read Ragtime by him. Like he <laughs> is a legend for a reason. And I can put aside my like hurt 21 year old feeling. <laughs> my friend Dave likes to talk about how there are good times and good stories. So I'm glad you have a good story out of that miserable seven minute interview. Definitely. And I'm like, out of all of the people I've talked to, he has been the only one that was like kind of not nice and like not even like mean, just kind of like he didn't have the time for me. Everybody else is just like so grateful and so nice and like, so excited to like be asked questions about their work. So one bad egg is good considering the many dozens that I've talked to. When you all filled out the submission form at what should I read next podcast.com slash guest. We all noticed here at what should I read next HQ. You mentioned that you read books together. Sometimes you read them in tandem and sometimes you read them aloud. We talk to a lot of readers and I see on Instagram, I see blog comments, people talk about doing buddy reads with a friend of theirs, either in their neighborhood or long distance or a group read on the internet. So this is not a new thing, but reading aloud is like next level buddy reading. It really is. I think we started, so it was when we were living together before, as Ryan mentioned before, Dracula is his favorite book and I had never read Dracula and he has a significant number of copies of Dracula. <laughs> and I just gave him a new one for Christmas so that I'm, I'm not helping the situation. I think it's like at least five, which is embarrassing. <laughs> Wait, why is that embarrassing? I am here to enable Ryan. What do you need? No, I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm very proud that no. I have five copies of Dracula. <laughs> yes, but I think it was like, it was sort of Halloween time and we thought, let's do a fun read. And we just sat on the couch and started reading Dracula together aloud. It was fun. And then it really got fun because... When they're in Whitby and doing all of that stuff, and I have been to Whitby on a study abroad program, we were really trying to map it all out because I was thinking, hey, I've actually been here and I'm trying to figure out how this uh, all works. So we probably got much nerdier about Dracula <laughs> than the average person. There were definitely like maps at one point of us being like, so yes. they're walking from here to here. There's this guy that has a crazy accent that they talk to that is ridiculous <laughs> to read aloud. And then Van Helsing is just like a hoot because he is Dutch, but then like curses in German. <laughs> There's a lot of it that does not make any sense, but that's kind of why it's perfect is that it's completely out of control. And then it's just like, we had so much fun reading it aloud together because it's mm -hmm. like this creepy, spooky, fun thing, but it's also a book that's about friendship. Yeah. So it was a nice thing to share together. So that kicked it off. We've done several others since then. How much does your all's reading taste overlap? Pretty significantly. Yeah. You know, we're probably 75 to 80% overlap and then maybe we go a little off in either mm -hmm. direction. But we were just saying the other day, we're both very open to any kind of suggestion if there's a person who we trust who's recommending books because we'll both read anything. There just might be certain genres that I wouldn't normally mm -hmm. gravitate toward. Yeah, we were talking about it and I think our like base ones were like, we don't want to read like anything hateful. So like nothing by like Nazis, but like we are very open to like basically anything. We like joke that our favorite genre is chapter books. <laughs> <laughs> anything with chapters we're good with. It's an easy starting point, I think. Brenna has also pointed out, she was like, why do we stop calling them chapter books? Like why do they become chapter books when you're a certain age and then stop being chapter books? They do, don't they? They just become books. Yeah. Why can't we say that I'm reading a chapter book right now? <laughs> it just happens to be like a grown-up novel. It's a mystery. Brenna and Ryan, many guests say that it is torture to choose just three favorites 
to be on the show. But in a sense, you got to do it twice because you each chose your individual favorites and then you got to team up and choose your three favorites together. What was that process like? Well, to be fair, we were just sort of angling to think, how are we going to get on this show? (laughs) And so we thought we might be more interesting if we apply together because we do actually do this reading together. That also gives us some more freedom to cheat a little bit in terms of being able to pick more than just three favorites. And so trying to think of, especially things we knew we both would care about and would probably have been on our individual lists if we had Mm -hmm. to do it that way. And we both, I think also in our individual list, tried to stick to things that were more recent reads rather than all time, but it was still hard. It's always hard. (laughs) As it should be. Brenna, what did you choose for the three books that you love? So my first choice was White Teeth by Zadie Smith, which was not actually a more recent read for me. Ryan and I read it in a post-colonial literature class in our master's degree, but it was just too good for me not to include. I will continue to always be astounded that Zadie Smith wrote it when she was 24. It's just sort of amazing. The writing is, the story's great. I love all the moving parts and how those fit together at the end where they really seem like they shouldn't. And also, how do you do that when you're 24? Okay, congratulations, Zadie Smith. (laughs) My second is The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang, which is a very different book. I don't even remember. I got it from the library last year, and I don't even remember how I sort of stumbled upon it, but I got, I think I got it right when it was released. I think that that was just a really fun, nice, light book that also has some depth. I have her newer book on hold currently. I haven't read it yet, but I just was excited by that and just sort of like pleasantly Mm -hmm. surprised by how smart and sort of heartfelt Mm -hmm. it was. And then my third pick was Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides, which I just read last year for the first time, but owned for a very long time. And Ryan had read it and liked it a lot. I think what I like a lot about that one is the sort of very sweeping family saga I also just recently read The House of the Spirits, and I think that those two sort of pair nicely in similar ways when you're talking multi-generations of family and family secrets and all of that kind of stuff. And so I really liked how that was handled. I also think that Eugenides handled having Cal as an intersex person very well. And I think what's really smart in both of those books with House of the Spirits also is how those authors are able to make you sort of understand the murky sorts of situations that these characters are in and the decisions that that they make that you wouldn't maybe approve of, but that you can understand where they come from and still sympathize to some extent. I see how you snuck an extra book in there. (laughs) I did. I did sneak. Ryan, what did you choose for your three favorites? So I kind of tried to stick with recent things, things that I read last year. Um, I tried to stay away from all-time faves just because I would probably turn into a blubbering mess (laughs) trying to describe those. Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Everybody knows that Toni Morrison is an icon, but I think what she's really great at is she will build up an entire book to the point where it feels like she's not going to be able to pull off what she's trying to pull off. And then you get to the end and she does it in this way that's completely unexpected. And like when you think back on it, you're like, that feels totally in line with everything that came before. That's really true of like Song of Solomon, Beloved, Sula. She's really great at like making her form and style like fit the characters that she's created and the story she's trying to tell. She does some things that are kind of out there with form, but she's so smart about making it like all work in context. I will follow her into the dark. And I told Brenna yesterday, I was like, I will like go into a period of mourning when she dies, but she will also never die. So, and then I picked for my second book, If Beale Street Could Talk by James Baldwin, like Toni Morrison. James Baldwin is also an icon. 
there's nothing that I've ever read by him that I didn't like really like or just love with all of my heart. But he is so great. And I feel like you especially see it. And if Beale Street could talk, he's really good at kind of like hitting the peaks and valleys of human emotion. So like joy and despair and everything that's in between. And he's really great at writing about kind of everyday people and making everything that happens to them and everything that they're thinking and feeling feel kind of monumental and like ripe with meaning. And he writes so vividly and like brings things to life in such a like kind of burning and passionate way. His books still feel so full of urgency, even though they're older. I know after I read If Beale Street Could Talk last year, I immediately was like, Brenna, you have to read this. There's a scene where a character goes to Puerto Rico and it's the most riveting thing I've ever read in my life. (laughs) The movie version happened and the scene of that character going to Puerto Rico is the same exact feeling of like, wow, this is amazing. My third love was something that I really thought I would hate before I read it. So I read this for work because I was about to interview the author. So it's Mrs. Fletcher by Tom Parada. The reason I picked this as a love is that it really surprised me me. For those of you who do not know about Mrs. Fletcher, (laughs) it is definitely something that most listeners and guests would call a little racy. Um, So Mrs. Fletcher, Eve, and her son Brendan have to kind of grapple with some new life circumstances because Brendan is going off to college and Eve is becoming an empty nester. And then Eve gets a kind of racy text from an unknown number and goes on this journey of self-discovery. And it was something that I was like, oh, this is going to be so gross. I'm going to hate this. Like, this is a man writing about a woman's kind of like sexual reawakening. And I was like, this is just going to be icky and I'm not going to like it. And then I started reading it and I was like, wow, I can't put this down every night when I picked it up to read it. I was so excited to read it. And it ends up being like sweet and fun and weird (laughs) in a very like kind of naughty way. (laughs) I really love, so the NPR review of the book described it as raunchy but sweet. And I feel like that's the perfect way of putting it. And then like there's some weirdness at the end too that makes it like signature Tom Parada. But it really surprised me. And it was one of those things that I finished and then like could not stop thinking about all the time. I have recommended it to multiple people and they get back to me and they're like, Ryan, why do you like this? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know because it seems like something that should be outside of my wheelhouse, but there's something about it that I love. It's not grimy. And that's yeah. something that I think we talk about a lot in a lot of entertainment. I am fine with unlikable characters. I'm fine with people making inappropriate decisions or whatever, but there's sort of a level of griminess <laughs> that I just, that's where we turn off. But it's not that way. And I think that that's where it definitely could have gone and didn't go. He definitely like threads the needle of how gross is too gross and like how gross can he be with like still being funny and smart. <laughs> yes. Grimy is a good word. Uh, Ryan, <laughs> what book wasn't for you? Ooh, this is one that I know a lot of people have talked about loving and that I know you've recommended to people. The book that I do not like is Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. I've read 10th of December by him. I've read some of his other short stories, and I think he's really, really good. The thing that drove me crazy about Lincoln and the Bardo is that it's his debut novel, which I say novel in quotes, because the form is like so out there to an extent that I don't feel like he really wanted to write a novel and then like created this weird workaround with this book. The human story of this book is that it's about President Lincoln dealing with the death of his son and kind of this weird period of like in between of like his son hasn't passed on to the afterlife and there are all of these ghosts talking. 
he's kind of like privileging the form and technique over the human story. And it kind of becomes like so overwrought and complicated that I think he's losing sight of like the emotional core. There are some brief flashes of his like brilliance and these kind of glimpses of raw emotion. And there are some funny poop jokes, which I appreciate. (laughs) But it all kind of gets obfuscated by the form of the book in a way that I found really distracting. And I just like could not deal with it. And it's one of those things that people will ask me if if I've read it and I say, "Uh uh-huh. And they're like, isn't it amazing? And I'm like, no, not to me. But if it is to you, that's great. (laughs) I've heard the audio version is good. So maybe one day I'll revisit it. Brenna, what was a book that wasn't for you? Well, and... (laughs) This is personal. This is personal. Persuasion by Jane Austen. My sort of dramatic take on Jane Austen is that I've read four of her novels and I sort of feel like they're all just versions of the same story and Pride and Prejudice is the best version of that story. Which ones haven't you read? Mansfield Park and Northanger Abbey. I read this, I think in college, it was over the summer and I very much remember being in the middle of it and just thinking, what is going on in this book? I was with Ryan and another of our friends. We had dinner. The three of us ended up dying laughing because I was explaining sort of the situation when the one character gets jumped down the stairs and then they sort of think that she's dead out of nowhere because she falls down in the yard and just thinking, well, this is very strange and silly, but okay, we're allowed to be dramatic about medical things because that's how a lot of books of this period are. But I think kind of the reason I didn't like it as much as the others, because I've, you know, I really, I love Pride and Prejudice. I liked Emma and I like Sense and Sensibility. But I think my issue was I rooted to some extent for Anne Elliot and Wentworth to be together, but I didn't really find anybody else as compelling, where in those other three, you do care about other characters. There are certainly people who are semi-villainous or Mm -hmm. problem people. But I think that was sort of my issue was just nobody else was making me happy. You know, I rooted for those characters, but didn't feel as invested in that one as many do. I feel like of the four, three of them really sparkle and this one doesn't. And I don't mean that as it's better or worse because in colder months, like persuasion could be my favorite. I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to rotate back into the favorite spot now, but I don't know what kind of reader I'll be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And I hope I'm still reading then to have an opinion about persuasion, but I feel like the others just glimmer. Like the prose is so good. And I sound like such a nerd, but I'm talking to two people with master's degrees and one working on a doctorate. So I think that's okay. Where persuasion always has felt like it's not as sharp and that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. Right. But it sounds like you would have appreciated the sharp a little more. Maybe. And I think it's one that I could see myself revisiting at some point, especially, you know, it being one of the, or I assume the shortest and quite significantly shorter than Pride and Prejudice or those Mm -hmm. sorts of things that I could revisit it. I have not yet felt compelled to return to it. (laughs) Let's talk about the books that you all are reading together. So our first one is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. And honestly, if we don't (laughs) both start crying in the next... 30 seconds talking about it. That will be a miracle. I read it just last March, actually, because my mom and I were going to New York over his spring break and thought, good, this will be my reason to finally read this book. My mom even said it had been her mom's favorite book and she had never read it. But I very much remember, I think on our flight home, early-ish in the book, but when she's starting to learn her edition and she starts making up how all of the numbers are these little characters and little families and this is what it means when five and six and whatever, and just thinking, this is so charming and so strange and funny. That book, I think, broke both of us. We are 
obsessed and so emotional about everything that happens to Francie <laughs> Newland. I was actually listening to an older episode of this very podcast and a guest like picked this book and like started off by saying like, it's the story of Francie, her brother, her mother and her father. And I was like immediately tearing up and starting to cry. And it was like, what is wrong with me that this book like broke my brain? <laughs> Sometimes like if we're driving for long periods of time, like I just start thinking about this book and start crying. And it's not even a sad book. It's just like, I love it so much. And it feels like it's like in my heart. It's very much like a product of its time, but it still like feels very fresh and kind of contemporary. Like it still feels real. And all of the like feelings and emotions are like so natural and like not put on you. And that's why you like start to care about Francie so much is that you're not being told to care about her. It's perfect. Yeah, it really is perfect. There's like no description of this book that does it justice. Like you just have to read it and be along for the ride. So our second shared pick, which was the other one that I read first, is The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And this was one, again, that I just sort of ended up with from the library last summer, and then Ryan read it after I did. I've now read all of her books as of yesterday, actually. I think that she writes good, entertaining, pretty easy fiction. And I just think Evelyn Hugo is so much more complicated than it has to be. It could still be a very entertaining and enjoyable book without sort of the depth of one that you have sort of cultural elements and you have elements of sexuality and those sorts of things that are big parts of the story being sort of a period piece covering several decades of time. I think that she does a really great job of capturing all of that experience in the sort of old Hollywood thing that I think is always really fun to read or experience if it's done well. I've definitely thought of at some point being able to teach it because I think it's a really fun book that also sparks a lot of discussion that's not just, mm -hmm. hey, here's this book that's entertaining to read. Yeah, it's definitely like a fun and dishy page turner. Like it's big and you can read it so fast because you get really wrapped up in it. Kind of like Brenna said, she's doing so much work below the surface that makes it so full of depth and meaning. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh my goodness. And she kind of is like striking that perfect balance of being fun and smart. Like it's a very like fizzy book, but then it's really skillfully written. And then our last pick is one that we did actually read aloud together. And that is The Collected Poems of Edna St. Vincent Millay. One, Edna St. Vincent Millay, if you do some research on her as a person, is a really interesting person, especially for her t life and her time period. She was raised by a single mother. I think she had two sisters and her mom made them all read like Shakespeare <laughs> and Milton and all of these big people. And so I imagine that has an effect on you becoming a poet because she writes so many sonnets, which obviously is a very old form of poetry. They're so engrossing and entertaining and heartfelt often. And then also some of it's just really funny. <laughs> Which is maybe not what people expect. Yeah, I think yeah, so. She was just like such a trailblazer like, and had such an interesting life outside of her work. But then her actual work is also just divine. Like Brenna said, it's like so funny and so fresh. And it's like making you kind of reconsider like what can a sonnet be? Because I think we all just think of like Shakespeare when we think of sonnets. We were talking about it last night because we both kind of like struggle with poetry. We want to be good about reading it, but we want to like it. And there's a really great line from Jeanette Winterson where she says that poetry is pleasure. And I think that's kind of like exactly what we felt when we were reading this aloud together. Like it was just like a complete joy to like read this back and forth together and experience that. That is good to hear and not terribly surprising. That being said, I'm not brave enough to recommend <laughs> any poetry that you may enjoy today. Jointly. <laughs> 
that's okay. Tell me about a book that jointly didn't work for you all. We picked, which is sort of odd because he also was in my favorites list, but we picked The Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eugenides. I read, I think Ryan actually read this first. I think Brenna lent it to me, actually. So Brenna, like, got it at a library sale, and I think I borrowed mm-hmm. it from her. And I remember I was, like, reading it in the car, like, on a trip to Michigan, which is all weird because I don't really visit Michigan that often. I was just kind of astounded because when the book starts, it's like, wow, this seems like something I should really like. The main character is an English major because she loves to read. The writing, like, on a sentence level is really good because it's Jeffrey Eugenides, but, like, wow, it really just ends up being this story of three really problematic and not very interesting white people. I don't know. It just, like, kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And I remember, like, I marked a page because there was something I liked on it. And then I, like, went back after I finished the book and was trying to find the sentence that I liked. And it was like, wow, I'm, like, getting angry looking at all of this over again. (laughs) And then Brenna read it and had, like, a similar reaction Yeah. And I was bummed to have that reaction because I read it, I think, right after I graduated from college. And that's exactly how it starts. This young woman who has just graduated from college and she's an English major. It started out that I felt like I was going to enjoy it. And then just sort of ends up you being frustrated with the characters because they're sort of creating all of their own problems and no one's doing anything to fix those problems. Again, that I can handle people making bad decisions, but at some point I need you to not anymore. Get over making those bad decisions. And that is a common refrain from readers. For the record, I was so excited to hear about this one on NPR. And this was years ago when it was just about ready to come out. And mm-hmm. the, the idea behind the title is so many great works of literature, like those of Jane Austen, yes. are based on a plot that revolves around marriage. And I thought, I want to read a book about people studying Jane Austen. And it turns out I didn't want to read this book about people studying Jane Austen grad school. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I was tricked by the title. Not what I was hoping for, which might be my fault and not his. I think we both read Middlesex after reading this book and we were both like, wow, he can do some really great stuff. Like, what did he do with the marriage plot that was so like harebrained? But yeah, I feel like Middlesex is kind of the like antithesis to the marriage plot in terms of meaning and like caring about the characters and the journey and the overall scope of it feels grand and personal. And the personal stuff in the marriage plot is just like infuriating. It's been a long time, but I don't think I'd argue with that. (laughs) Okay, Brenna and Ryan, collectively, we have nine books you all love, three books you don't. And there are definitely some themes here that I am certain because you analyze literature as your job, that these are not lost on you. So you like works that are character-driven, that are lyrical, that surprise you in ways, whether that's the way the story is told or the direction the story takes itself. You like insight into human emotion, especially if it hits the highs and the lows. And you like titles that aren't telling stories that you feel like you've already heard. Am I getting this right? That sounds right. We were like so excited. We were like, Anna's going to diagnose us and we can't wait to hear what she thinks we like. (laughs) We're ready for our clinical reading diagnosis. (laughs) The only cure is more books. (laughs) I like the way you're spinning that. (laughs) You also said that you wouldn't be averse to finding something that you probably had not encountered before. I almost said off the beaten path. And I don't think that's fair for anything I really have in mind today, but books that maybe you would have to actually be looking to find because you haven't seen them all over the internet or they're not on all your assigned reading courses or they haven't been on the front table or bestseller table at your bookstore for the past month or 10 years. I'm going to start bold and then we'll get less bold. The first book I'm wondering about is a release from last fall. It's by Wyatt Tumore and it's called She Would Be King. Is this a book you know? I have heard of it and seen the cover. Okay. This is a debut novel 
out last September, the author has been likened to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who I have talked about so much on this podcast. Otherwise, I might be like flinging her books your way. (laughs) But some critics are saying, oh, if she keeps writing, her legacy could be similar to Chimamanda. So you better believe that that got my attention. She was born in Liberia. And when she was five years old, this was in 1989. She's older than all of us, even though I'm a lot older than you. The country was in the middle of a civil war. And because her mother, I think she was a Fulbright scholar at the time, but she was an academic at Columbia and she had connections and the family was able to escape when she was five. They fled to the U.S., eventually landed in Houston, and she spent many of her formative years there. But she's always known that her heritage was in Liberia. In this novel, she uses that family background, some of which she experienced, some of which her broader family has experienced, but some of which is just the personal interest that she has in her heritage, even though she can't remember actually being there. But she wanted to, in a very creative way that was true to her country, of her ancestors, she wanted to tell the story of the country's early years, and she wanted to do it in a way that was true to the heritage, which meant telling it through the lens of character myth and magical realism. So those are not elements that you, that really you have mentioned today, but I think they're elements that because you haven't mentioned them today, you could go there. It's character driven. The style is complex, but not, we're not talking Lincoln and the Bardo levels of inventiveness. Uh, There are three main characters who drive the story They're all strong women. In fact, she said something really interesting. The novel itself is very female-driven. And when asked about it in an interview here in the U.S., she said, I think the strongest women I know are Liberian women. They are powerhouses, both explicitly and in the background. And you really see that in the story. I mean, Ryan, I think you could read about some strong women. But since Brenna's academic work is focused on this subject, I think it could be really interesting for you to read this book right now. Moore takes a long time laying out backstories, and it takes about half the book for her to lay all that out and for the threads to start coming together. So I think you should know that going in, but I think you will find it worth it. And then something really interesting about the magical realism angle here. One, she said that's very true to her heritage and their way of understanding and telling stories. Her family fled Liberia because of civil war. And she said that she uses magical realism here in this book now in the same way that magical realism was used to tell her stories as a child. Because how do you explain civil war to a five-year-old? You do it in a way that's a little more mythical, a little more fantastical. And I just love that full circle she's drawn between her own experience and the way she's telling this story now. How does this sound to you? That sounds very interesting to me. Actually, it was reminding me, I was in an African-American drama class this spring semester, and one of the plays we read had some mythic elements that I think I was reminded of as you were talking, but that sounds very interesting to me. Yeah, that sounds right up our alley. We are both like really aware that if you don't pay attention when you're reading, you can end up reading a lot of straight white men. So I think we both kind of make an effort to stray outside those lines. Next, I basically want to recommend everything Jacqueline Woodson has ever written. Ryan, maybe you'll get to talk to her soon because she has a new book coming out this (laughs) September. It's called Red at the Bone. Two families whose lives become intertwined because of an unexpected pregnancy. That is everything I know, but I want to read it when it comes out. Have you read anything by Jacqueline Woodson? Yeah, we've both done Brown Girl Dreaming. And then I know I've done another Brooklyn. 
Yeah, I did too. Those are great places to begin with her. She's written for adults and for children, although we just talked about how that Y label is tricky. She writes books that are complex and culturally diverse, and she writes really great characters who are telling their own stories. And also something that really surprises me about Jacqueline Woodson, you didn't explicitly ask for this, but I don't think it would go amiss in this time in both your lives, is that she writes in such a compact way. And I like that for two reasons for you. Mm. One, her books are short Mm -hmm. and you can go through them kind of quickly. But two, Brenna, you specifically said the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo did so much more than it had to do. And I feel like what Jacqueline Woodson does is she just imbues every scene in her book with so many layers and so much meaning. So even though her books have not historically been long, they still have such heft to them, even if they might only consist of 200 pages. Now, if you wanted to go a little off what I'm guessing might be your beaten path because of the books you've chosen today, which is probably a little representative, but not entirely encompassing (laughs) of your reading life, is her middle grade book, Harbor Me. It begins when six kids have to meet for a weekly discussion group all by themselves with no grown-ups to supervise or listen in. They discover that this becomes a safe place to talk about everything. I really admire when an author has the range to write for middle grade. Actually, I think she has picture books too. And to write for adults and to do both really well. And I think you might appreciate seeing a different genre from an author that you know and have enjoyed. Yeah, that sounds interesting. And I like what you said too about her kind of writing for all age groups because I know that she's very respected as kind of like a community figure. Like everybody that I know that's like a literary person like always shouts out Jackie Woodson is like, she's a real one. She's like kind of the every woman who like supports everybody and boosts everybody, which I think is really great when somebody has that kind of clout, but then they use it to help other people. Jackie, oh, I'm not on Jackie terms, but (laughs) she's still Jacqueline to me. (laughs) Those are my goals. Yeah, I feel like I see her get called Jackie Woodson and I'm like, yeah, we're friends, Jackie Woodson. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's funny. There are some authors that exist in my mind as uh, we're just totally on a first name basis, but they don't actually know it. Oh, we talk about Zadie Smith like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I've at least seen her in person. But I <laughs> okay, isn't her voice the best? I went to a reading with her and Ann Patchett and then I like met her after and... Oh my gosh, her voice is just amazing in person. Uh, Yes, sounds about right to me. She's one of those people where, yes, she can read me the phone book. Definitely. Okay, for a third book, I'm thinking of character-driven, story behind the story, strong females, Color of Water by James McBride. I have read Five Carat Soul by him. I like this for you. This is a memoir. It's a true story. The subtitle is A Black Man's Tribute to His White Mother. And McBride's parents have a very interesting story. Um, talks about the peaks and valleys of human emotion. They had an interracial marriage back in the 1940s in America. Living now, I know intellectually that that was not done at the time. And it was very difficult. But it's almost difficult for me to grasp until I read something like this, something that really takes you back to what actually happened to people whose children are still living now. It was not that long ago, how difficult and countercultural it was to live in that kind of family, in that place, in that time. And he speaks so poignantly in this book about his own family upbringing. He grew up as one of 12 children in this family with a white mother and a black father. 
what his family's place was in the world and how his peers understood his place in the world. And he talks about his mother's contributions to his life, his confusion over his own identity. But what I love in this book, which alternates perspective, I did this on audio, which was fantastic. And that's another reason I like it for you is I can imagine Mm. it being so powerful and enjoyable to read aloud because the cadence is almost musical. Even though this is wholly written by McBride, I believe his mom just didn't want to read it and really didn't want, she gave him permission, but she didn't really want a part of the story. But he alternates chapters telling his perspective and his mother's perspective to give a voice to a woman who really decided to take on the world and how she equipped her kids to face the world from this perspective of a family that was looked askance at every single day. It's a really powerful and fascinating story. How does that sound to you? That sounds very interesting. I'm glad actually that you said you listened to it on audio because that's sort of how I was imagining it because I like doing a lot of memoir and nonfiction on audio because I think that's just an interesting way to experience those stories. But yeah. That book has actually like been on my radar forever because at some point when I interviewed Ann Patchett, we talked about like a book that every person should read or something. And that was her pick. And she said, it doesn't matter like who you are or where you're from, that story and those people in that story are so important and something that everybody should know about. Um, so it's something that I've like known about for a long time, but it's nice to have a little extra push to read it now. Oh, well, that's high praise from Ann Patchett and I'm happy to be your extra push. So of the books we talked about today, they were She Would Be King by Wyatt Tumor, Harbor Me by Jacqueline Woodson, and The Color of Water by James McBride. What do you think you all will read next? I think I'm most excited about She Would Be King right now. I agree. I feel like that seems like something that would be like a nice little pop in my reading life right now. A nice little pop. I like that description. <laughs> Maybe that will follow. We're currently reading The Mayor of Casterbridge together. So <laughs> that'll be a little bit of a change of pace. Brenna and Ryan, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking books with me today. Thank you. Anne. Thank you for having us. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Brenna and Ryan, and I'd love to hear what you think they should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 189, and it's where you will find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can find Brenna and Ryan on Instagram. They're at Ryan Pate and at Brenna Cheryl, and I'll spell those for you. It's at Ryan Pate, R-Y-A-N-P-A-I-T, and at Brenna, B-R-E-N-N-A, Cheryl. S-H-E-R-R-I-L-L. If you're curious about Ryan's writing in the Houstonian, head to the show notes for a link. Next week, I'm chatting with Beth Wallen, who is reconsidering her relationship with books in anticipation of a big life change on the horizon. Here's a sneak peek. And I assume that science fiction is going to be spaceships and robots and strange planets and artificial intelligence. And I, I, it just, for some reason, they start rattling off weird planet names and it just doesn't en- embrace me. One of the books on my favorites was listed as a science fiction book, but it doesn't seem science fiction to me at all. So maybe I don't really know what qualifies as science fiction. Maybe I have a stereotype of what science fiction is. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. 
If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you are not on the list, sign up now at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter and you'll get our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts because that review helps your fellow readers find our show. And please check out my book, I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life. You can find that wherever new books are sold. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>